0: of the church what god's word says about the church and in particular this morning i'm going to talk more about it in the sundays to come but this morning i want to look at the the nature of the church and the purpose of the church next week by the way someone some of you have asked me about the father's day sermon because it was supposed to be part two and we didn't meet last week so we haven't heard part two and i'll do that next sunday next sunday we'll We'll do our uh, sermon for fathers. I guess I won't call it a Father's Day sermon anymore since that's in the past. It's a sermon for fathers. When I think about the church, you know, when you sit down and you want to give a teaching or a message about the church of Christ, it's such a big topic. Where do you start? And so as I kind of just was thinking about this and preparing for this, I became very grateful to God for something that, i think i uh, i take for granted and that is the way that god has designed the world to operate and his principles is that we can actually enjoy things like jump in and out of things without really understanding the true nature and purpose of that thing you know i played sports as a kid i enjoyed it i did a variety of, of of different sports and um I never stopped and thought, wait a minute, why am, I, why am I doing this other than that mom said I had to or other than because I like it or everybody else? You know, is there a real purpose behind all of this? So even if you think about, um, but I didn't have to understand that to enjoy it. You think about something as important as marriage, how many people actually have stopped around the world? Marriage is a worldwide thing. How many people have actually stopped and asked the question, "What is the exact? Does my relationship with my spouse have a a nature and a purpose to it?" Because a lot of people around the world are enjoying the estate of holy matrimony. Uh, They they jump into it. They enjoy each other's company. They would tell you, "I take delight in it." They would say, "I absolutely love my spouse." Maybe even adore my spouse. Uh, There's good times. There's Sometimes there's hard, hard times in a relationship, so we get to experience all of the, uh, all of the attributes or aspects of things. But sometimes, how many people actually stopped and asked the question: Is there an actual design, specific design to this? A real purpose, reason, and nature to marriage? Um, as people of the book, we would say yes. That marriage, one of the reasons, the great mystery of marriage, is that it's a human or earthly example or metaphor of Christ's love for his bride. So every marriage, according to God's revelation, serves that specific purpose. So that defines and really affects how we interact and how we're to look at our relationship. Church. If I say, what is church? Probably most of us would immediately think about our church. New Covenant Fellowship. This is church. And it is. It's our real experience. And 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 this is kind of the boots on the ground church to us. But it, it's bigger than our experience. Just like marriage is bigger than our experience. It's bigger than that. And I want to just take a little time. Looking at a big picture. Can't cover it all obviously. But just thinking through some of the things that scripture uh, says about the church to expand our minds to it. The nature, the, the purpose. And I want to begin in Matthew 16, 18, just kind of as a, to lay a foundation, because literally that's the foundation of the church. And Matthew sixteen eighteen says, Jesus is speaking, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So the church, we are built, and the church is built on a rock. And the big question for the church is, what is the rock? What are we built on? And not everybody has the same answer to that question. the, The Catholics believe that Jesus is literally saying, you're Peter, and Peter means rock, and so on... The rock, I'm going to build my church. And that's where they come up with the whole idea of apostolic succession. And the popes, that Christ appointed Peter as the head of the church and all of his successors will literally be the leader and the absolute head of the church. And the Protestants would say, um, not so fast, because the rock is, if you look at the context of of Jesus' words... The rock is not Peter, but the rock is Peter's confession. Because if we look at what came before verse 18, Jesus said, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven... And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. So the rock is, many scholars believe, the confession of Christ, I mean the confession of Peter in Jesus Christ. So the church is built on a true, sincere confession on who Christ is, why Jesus came. It's not built on any one person. The apostles had a very unique place in the foundation of the church. They were anointed. God used them as mighty servants. But they weren't perfect men. They were imperfect men. We've been reminded in the book of Galatians that the apostle Paul had to rebuke the apostle Peter for his tendency to revert back to the ceremonial ways of Judaism. And that's not the gospel. The gospel... Or, and the church is built on the gospel. The gospel is built on the confession that Jesus is Christ. Jesus is the son of the living God. Jesus is God. And so the church is built on the rock. That's common to New Covenant Fellowship because that's our, our slogan. We're building on the rock. That means we're building on Christ. And the word, Christ is the word and the living word. And in that way, the church is built on something that's perfect. That's pure. It's strong, that's solid, it's built on the, the inerrant word and person of Jesus Christ. Though they're leaders, God uses servants and he uses leaders. It's built on that confession. So no true confession of Christ, you have no true church. True confessions of Christ and who he reveals himself to be is what the church is based on. The so building on the rock. So with that understanding, what exactly is the church? Like, is it possible to have a true church and a false church? Uh, it is, and if so, how would we ever even know what that is? So let me offer you a very simple broad stroke definition of the church that will hopefully immediately broaden our minds outside of our local church. So... I'm going to use the words or definition of Wayne Gruden. He says the church is the community of all true believers for all times. It's interesting. I appreciate Noah. He opened us with the Apostles Creed, the communion of saints. There's a communion of saints because what is that? That's that's the church. Church is a gathering or the communion of saints. So when you think about the church in a big picture, it's the community of all true believers for all time. So when Jesus or God looks at the church, he doesn't just see us. He sees another congregation and another congregation and another congregation as they have also been called around the world and congregations and people from all time, past, present and future. Ephesians 5, 25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The church is filled with people that have been redeemed by the blood of Christ and have confessed that. Christ calls people to himself. Christ builds his church by changing hearts, by Enlightening minds, turning lights on in the mind to see the reality of the existence of God. And he calls us in and claims us as his own. And now we are a people that are called together to serve him. But that's getting into the purpose of the church. John six thirty seven: all that the father gives me will come to me it's Jesus building his church and whoever comes to me I will never cast out I love John 10:28 I cling to that where Jesus it's the same concept the father draws and gives to the to the son and he says nobody will snatch them out of my hand I love how God puts the emphasis on his promise his faithfulness when Jesus when God gives something To God the Son, it's His forever. He will not let us, the truly redeemed, out of His hand. So the emphasis is is not how well I do at clinging to God, but how well God does at clinging to me and the church. He will not lose any of the blood-bought children from any tribe, from any nation, from any time that that individual expressed their faith in God. This is known as the church universal. We're the church local. We, we see each other grow. We listen to each other. Praise God. We know each other's voices. Uh, we watch people grow. Not just physically but spiritually. It's the church local. We get to experience. But there's the church universal. People in the church that we've never met before. That are God's servants and children but we have that in common we're all the church because we have the same confession we share the same father and we share God's word and live by that so we have much in common without ever even knowing each other so if the church consists of all the people that have believed in God throughout the ages what does that mean for the new for the Old Testament a lot of people say well well how did Old Testament Saints get saved what did how does that work and how does the church come into play with all of that there's different views about that I won't spend a lot of time on it but some look at the scriptures and they see a very sharp dichotomy between okay God dealt with the Old Testament people of Israel and then we have this kind of parentheses time of the church and then God's going to deal with with Israel again, and there's kind of a sharp distinction in that only the Old Testament promises that were given will be fulfilled in the people of Israel, and only the ethnic people of Israel will enjoy those. And others say, and I would agree with this group of scholars a little more than, or more than the first group, others say, no, people have been saved by faith. Every person that's ever been saved has been saved by faith in Christ. Like when you read scripture, it spends a lot of time talking about salvation by faith. And everything in the Old Testament, all the symbols and and the ceremonies and the blood that was spilled, points to Christ. And the people in the Old Testament believed, according to the revelation that they had, that God was going to send a Redeemer. So they believed in the Redeemer to come, the Messiah to come. That's what they were always so excited about. Whereas the New Testament church... Looks back at the Messiah. Old Testament look forward. New Testament we look back to what Christ. But everything hinges. Everything in the the Old Testament hinges on the work of Christ. And everything in the New Testament. It all hinges and points to the work of Christ. So the faith in the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul tells us would be vain. If Christ never came and died on the cross. So. I think Scripture ties it together. And we even see in Scripture that Old Testament promises are, that were given to Israel are fulfilled in the church, the people of the church. But there's a very important verse, I think, that comes to play when we think about the relationship of the two. And that's in Ephesians 2, verses 14 through 16. He's talking about when it comes to faith in Christ, there is no, technically speaking, there's no Jew and Gentile. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and... Might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So you see that all were saved by faith, and the Old Testament people were called by God to worship Him in a different way than the New Testament people. But the plan all along was that we would be one new man. That's the beauty of what Christ has done. There's no wall, there's no separation there, no Jew or Gentile, and God thinks bigger than just the just the family of Abraham and his descendants and just one nation in the world. God is after all the nations, all the tribes, to bring them and we all become one in Christ based on what He has accomplished for us. Even in the New Testament, when Stephen was talking about the Old Testament people and gives a great history of of the old testament people he actually calls them the gathered ones or the ecclesia so in in the new testament the ecclesia is the word for the church it's a gathering it's a congregation here so here's what peter said when he's giving his apologetic to those that are about to stone not peter stephen stephen says when those, were, those that were about to stone him. He says, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites. God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. He's talking about Christ. And this is the one who was in the congregation. In the wilderness. With the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Though so that He's talking about the Old Testament was telling us. Moses was telling us that there's another prophet to come. And that's Christ. But it's interesting that he looks back at the gathering of God's people. And calls them a a gathering, a congregation. So it's God gathering. The church is God gathering his people. Calling his people from all ages. And from all time to worship him. To gather before him. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to save. First for the Jew and then for... Save anyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. So, to be a part of the church is to be a part of the community of believers. All those that have believed at any time and those who will believe, even in the future, whom the Father has given The sun. We are a local expression of the big picture of what God is doing with the church. And we matter. We absolutely matter. And what we experience here any given Sunday or during the week as we commune together, it's real. It's Christ's work in us. And we're just one spark of the firework display of the church. I think. I'm confident, I know I can say this about myself, and I'm pretty sure you will be as well, that when we get to heaven, our socks will be blown off when we see the gathering of the saints of God from all time. And we see the application of the blood of Christ and how God has regenerated hearts and minds. And he's drawn people from different times all over the world, all over the globe as a gift to his son to be the church. It's going to be a beautiful, beautiful sight when we can see the work of Christ. You know, you can't talk about the church, sadly, however, without also at least mentioning the warnings. Because the the scriptures are also filled with warnings about being careful about Uh, To make sure it's the word of God that's being taught to the congregations, the people that gather. And it's not a false teaching. There's hardly a church in the New Testament the Apostle Paul has not written to or made some reference about watch out for these people. They sound good. They're very alluring. But what they're saying is not in line with the true word of God. And so as the saints, we have to be on guard. We have to know God and what He says. It's our responsibility personally. It's our responsibility as leaders to do our due diligence and bring you the Word of God. And it's your responsibility to discern it and to weigh it out and to search it for yourself to make sure, yeah, that's God's Word. There's warnings about this because we can be taken in. And it happens. You have the teachers that are not so obvious, that are false. But then Scripture even warns warns about the the wolves in sheep's clothing that will really, really lead us astray. In the book of 2 Corinthians that we've been looking at, how sad it is for the Apostle Paul to see this church be so easily swayed by false teaching. He said the same thing to the, the Galatians. It's like he's like, what happened so quickly? I mean, I was there with you. We looked at God's word together. And, and then somebody brings something that is not in agreement with the minute. And you say, yeah, that sounds good, too. That we have to be on guard with these things. And that tells us that the church, as we might see it from our perspective, may not, everybody in that church may not be the true church. There could be wolves in sheep's clothing. There could be false uh, false conversions, so to speak. Fakers, people that are faking it. People that really want to be a part of the church because they like the benefits and the friendship and the generosity. The Christ-likeness, but they've never bowed the knee. They're playing games. Fake false teachers, false congregants. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says in 16 to 19, Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, Who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrections already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. And then he says this. The Lord knows those who are his. So from our perspective, we can be fooled. We can be fooled. But it's important that we know God cannot be fooled. And so our confession in Christ needs to be genuine, as sincere and as genuine as we can make it through the grace and the faith that God has implanted in our hearts to confess Him. So we can't, on this side of heaven, be absolutely sure who is one of the true church. Only God knows that. It's strictly from God's point of view. Now... He has given us, fortunately, some pretty good indicators. He hasn't left us completely in the dark so that we're constantly suspicious of each other. You know, or secretly, yeah, that guy, you're never going to make it, or oh yeah, they're in. It's it's not always the church team or the people on the church team that we would want. It's from God's perspective. But he's given us some indications, and that would be the fruit. Because when God comes into your life, he, he makes you more like him in the attributes and the characteristics of the fruits of the Spirit and the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, kindness, and so forth. So he changes us. Also, now we love him, whereas before we didn't. And so we're making changes to our lives, we're reevaluating our values and our priorities, and it's evident to people. And so he has, he has given us that, at least a, not, a, not a tried and true sign, but a pretty good sign of those who might be a part of the church. And we've got to look into that too. Especially when you think about who are you going to entrust your children to or who are you going to entrust a church to with leaders. We want to make sure, the best of our ability, that there are definitive signs of true conversion and transformation. We don't always want to be suspicious and we don't have to be. John Calvin said, make a charitable judgment whereby we recognize as members of the church all who by confession of faith, by example of life, and by partaking of the sacraments profess the same God and Christ with us. Matthew seven 15, you'll know them by their fruits. So we have a lot of things to think about. Regarding God's viewpoint of the church and how do we see it and how do we see ourselves. Truth is very important when it comes to the church. We'll get to that in a second. But God doesn't let us uh, or he works hard against us living a lie. It's just we're not set free if we're living a lie and the freedom comes in the truth of the reality and the good news of Jesus Christ. So to help us further understand the the nature of the church, what it might look like, Scripture gives us some metaphors, some examples. As we we think hard about, okay, then what is the church? I, I want to be a true church. I want to understand my part in it. What does it look like? From God's perspective. And he gives us a lot of different ways to look at the church. And through the years I've actually become very grateful. For the different metaphors God has given all of us. To help us understand what the church is supposed to be like. Because if we were to take just one of these and run with it. And only emphasize that. Then we wouldn't understand the true nature of the church. So let's look at a few of these and us. Uh, And I'm just going to hit them pretty quick. But Timothy 5, the first two verses, Paul views the church like a family. We are a family of believers. So he's using the analogy and the assumption is you know what a family is. Hopefully you're you're part of a good, strong family. And by the way, uh, the metaphors used in Scripture, when they use earthly examples are based on Scripture's ideal of what it should be. So when God, when Paul talks about the church as, hey, we're we're a family, the assumption is you have a good, working, healthy family, and that's what we want to be. But what that says, the Scripture even tells us to treat each other as brothers and sisters, uh, to treat the older ones in the church like fathers. So there's this level of respect in our relationships, honor, respect, kindness, charity with one another—that as we would treat each other in our family. And some of you are thinking, "God must not know my family." Well, you're not the family God's talking about here in this example. If you all are not uh, living like this, or haven't been transformed, then I would say, no, that's not a good example. But it's the idea of the making each other a priority and in, in the family ideally it's the safest place for you to be it's where you grow it's where you're challenged it's where you're learning to face life make hard decisions you're you're being coached you're being nurtured you're being loved on you're being fed there's no place like home and it's designed to be that way and the church is not that but it's like that it's not to take the place of the biological family That's an important institution in God's economy, but it's supposed to be like that. So we have an idea. I think that's a good idea of how we should relate to one another when we get together. And another uh, example of the church is the bride of Christ in Ephesians 5.32. So that looks at it as another example. And what do you do when you love someone and you want... To betroth them, you want to spend your life with them. You pursue them. You spend time with them. You lavish them. You treat them with respect. You don't want to run them off because you want to spend your lives together. So you woo them. And that's what Christ does to us as the church. He loves us. He pursues us with with a passion. He comes after us and takes ownership over us to guard us and protect us. These two metaphors use the very, I guess, the most unique institutions or relationships in life. You're talking about family. That's a very sacred, unique thing. You're talking about marriage. Very sacred, unique relationship. The church is to be a gathering of people with unique relationships. We love each other in a deep, deep sense. We're committed to each other. We guard each other. We're for each other. And then you have in John fifteen five, the relationship of the vine and the branches. And you get kind of into the vegetation stage of what the church might be like. The vine and the branches. Um, you, you, you can't be the branch without the vine. You need to be connected. If you, were, if you remain in me. My words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be given you. So there's this relationship where you're drawing your nourishment, what you need to be a Christian. You're connected to Christ and you're drawing that from Him. So we as a church need to make sure we're we're digging in deep, we're rooted and grounded in Christ, constantly growing in that sense. Also we talk about in Romans 11 olive tree where it's been things have been grafted that didn't originally belong and one of the ways that we look at ourselves as a new covenant fellowship in particular is that we have been graciously grafted into God's people we didn't deserve that we we were not born into that we did not deserve that this is something that God has done for us and now we get to benefit From all the glorious victories that Christ has gained for us, nourished from the root. Also talks in 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 9 about a field of crops. So we get into the um, kind of the more of the the vegetation stage of the church. You have the unique relationships, but now it's about digging in. It's about staying put, knowing where that, that water comes from, knowing where the nourishment comes from. And being the people of God who are steadfast in that way. The scripture also looks at the church and it, from a different angle. And as living stones, Peter says, 1 Peter two five, living stones, a spiritual house, and a royal priesthood. In Hebrews three six, we are called God's house. So you have a family, you have kind of trees and gardens and vines, and now you have... Buildings, structures, materials, we're God's house. Perhaps some of you can relate to that more than the gardening aspect or the family aspect. Yeah, we want to use the right kind of materials as God's house. We want, to, we want to be built on that solid foundation of Christ as the cornerstone. One of my favorites metaphors of the church is in 1 Timothy 3.15, and here's how. God describes us, and I think it's very important in the day and age that we live in. It says, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. We've already known about that household. It's managed, it's ordered. Which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So now we have a picture of a people who have been called and gathered together and saved by faith, given common cause and purpose through the Word of God, how we should think and behave. And God has entrusted to us the truth. We're we're a pillar and support of it. And that is such a profound statement because a lot of times we don't think about it. But this is... The greatest truth that exists. God, What God has revealed to us. It's what the whole world needs. It's what every individual that comes in this world needs. And God has entrusted with us the good news. He's entrusted to us truth. Look how many people are scrambling around to find truth. Or to try to convince people that there is no truth. Or your truth is your truth and my truth. It's making a mess of the world. And yet, here at New Covenant Fellowship, this little local expression, we have it. We have the truth that regards or pertains to godliness. To knowing the God that created us. It's all right here. It's an amazing thing. People deny divine revelation. And when you deny divine revelation, at least... From my understanding, you can't know the truth because we are dependent on God to work in our hearts and minds. As opposed to saying, man is the measure of all things and I'm completely trustworthy and you should believe everything I say because I'm so smart and I've looked at it from every conceivable angle, I'd say, I still don't trust you. I trust this. God's smarter. He knows. The pillar of in the buttress of truth. It's, it's an honor of all places in the world as the church to have the truth that the world needs the most. I recently listened to um, little Toby Mack. And I liked, he said, um, now I got to remember, I'm just a nobody trying to tell anybody about somebody. Now, wrap that, and it'll make sense to yourself. And then another metaphor. How do we look at each other? How do we understand each other? Well, you've been waiting for it, wondering if I was going to say it. The body of Christ in Corinthians, right? We're also like this body. And actually, Scripture uses that two different metaphors. We're the body of Christ in the sense we're the whole body, and each member does its part, has a function. You know, the eyes are supposed to see so that the rest of the body doesn't run into things. And every part is important. That's the whole purpose of giving that analogy is so that we as the church understand that every part and parcel has an important job and function. And when we fail to function in the way that we're supposed to, the whole body suffers. So it's a wonderful picture when we all do our part But it makes it hard on others when we don't. So that illustration um, puts responsibility on our shoulders. Uh, So we are a healthier church. A more vibrant church if we're all striving to live out what God has done in our hearts. To live according to the gifts and the talents that He's given us. And we bring that into the family of God. The household of God. Into this unique relationship And we live it out before him. The body of Christ. Then we also have the illustration. Where we're the body but Christ is the head. So what that means is he's the brains the operation so to speak. He, He does the leading. He's got the plan. And we're his feet. And we're his hands. And we're his joyful obedient servants. I can't tell you how much comfort that particular Metaphor has brought to me as a pastor because Christ is the head of the church and it just takes so much responsibility where the first analogy puts the responsibility on me. The second analogy takes it off of me in a good way because you're Christ, not mine. Christ is working in you. He's the supernatural God. I'm just a spokesperson as well as anybody else in here. That's, That's all on the bottom line. I want to do it well. But this is... God's plan, Christ's plan. You're his people. I might lose you, but he won't. He is the head. Understand that. So we put our, our trust in him and not as well as his servants might serve him in the body of Christ. We always look to Christ, the head. So that's just a kind of a big picture of the nature of the church. It's universal. We get the local expression of it. We get the the good feels of what happens here. But it's way bigger than us. And we we want to keep that in mind as we worship God. And we can worship Him more faithful as we know the true nature and the purpose. Now we want to talk about the purpose of the church. And I just looked at my watch and some of you might be thinking, wait a minute, that's all part one. Well, what is the purpose of the church? The purpose of the church, I I talk a lot about the purpose of the church. We talk a lot about the purpose of the church. And it is also one of our statements in something that we mention frequently at New Covenant Fellowship. Why do we exist? Well, you might know it as the three E's. So I don't have to spend a lot of time this morning on the purpose of the church. The three E's. I know that everybody in this church knows three E's. Matter of fact, I'll give $100 to anybody two years old or younger that can come up here and tell me the three E's. Nobody? All right, $50 to anybody three years old, without any assistance, three years old or younger that can come up here and tell us the purpose or the three E's of the church. Nobody. Okay. I will poke anybody in the eye 16 years or older if they can't come up here and tell me the purpose of the church. What are the three E's? The three E's. We, we exist. Our purpose is to exalt God, to edify the saints, and to evangelize the lost. He has called us together every Sunday. That's what we want to do as the people of God. In our unique unique relationship as brothers and sisters. In our unique relationship of our true confession built on the rock of Jesus Christ. We come together and we join our voices and we join our hearts. How can we do that? Because we have in common the truth. We have in common the living word, the Holy Spirit that lives in us. We look and think the same way. We're like-minded in that way. And that's why we can live in unity as a witness to the world. So, just very briefly, that is the purpose of the church. We don't want to forget that. That's why we come here. You can remind yourself when you come up the sidewalk every Sunday, Salt God. Who can I edify? Who can I talk to? Is there anyone lost among us? How will God use me in that way? That's why we're here. That's defined. So that's the nature and the purpose of the church by God's grace. So as the worship team, um, let me just say one more thing. As the worship team does not come forward yet. Uh, the, the true marks of the church during the Reformation, the, the people really had to think hard about, wait a minute, if the church veers, ever veers off, how do we really know the true marks of the church? And they boiled it down to two minimums. And it's where the Word of God is being purely preached or proclaimed or taught. And where the sacraments are being properly administered. So the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and Baptism that the Lord gave us. Those are the two minimum marks of a church where you have the sacraments practiced and the Word of God is purely preached and teached as the gospel as it is meant to be. It's... it's It can be more than that, but it's never less than that. Now, as the worship team comes and gets itself in place, I have six sentences I want to read to you as they come forward. And we have an opportunity to exalt God and partake of holy communion in obedience to the Lord as the body of Christ. The six sentences, and this is what comes out of our covenant class. About the church. Here's what we believe. We believe in the one true church. Consisting of the total company. Of God's elect through the ages. Furthermore we believe. That presently on earth. God's church is visible. And includes the people of God. In the entire world. God's church is mainly expressed. Through local congregations or bodies. We believe that the church. Is the temple of God's presence. And that she is God's foremost means. Of working in this world. As a result of God's presence, there will be found within the church worship, prayer, praise, united testimony, fellowship, giving, teaching, and preaching of the scriptures and observance of the sacraments of the Lord. We believe that God's church is recognized by its unity and relationships, its holiness of life, its openness to all, its submission to the scriptures, its preaching of Christ, It's fulfillment of the great commission and the practice of the sacraments. You're God's people. And as a church, we are God's people together. We are in covenant with God and therefore we are in covenant with each other. And we stand here by God's grace and have our living and being in him. So let's praise the Lord. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning.